Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Brennan Eagleston. He is the rehabilitation physiotherapist at the Melbourne Football Club. A passionate physio with a keen interest in management of elite athletes, always looking for innovative strategies to aid injury prevention and improve performance within a team environment. Since 2014, Brennan has worked in elite sport, including the North Melbourne Football Club, Norwich Football Club, and Melbourne. He is also co-founder of Enhance Sports Performance and Rehabilitation since December 2016. Highlights from this episode... We discuss Brennan's four key pillars for returning a footballer to performance, the importance of knowing why you're programming each exercise, why learning how to work within a team is critical in working in elite sport, how your biggest learnings come from those you work closest to, to, and developing the earn the right philosophy and how to apply it in a rehabilitation setting. Before we start this episode, if you want to improve your strength and power and gain a competitive edge this preseason, make sure to hire one of our Prepare Like a Pro coaches and join our individualized coaching package. For more information, head to preparelikeapro.com and you can join our email list for more information. Let's get into today's episode with Brennan. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Brennan. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me, mate. Let's dive in the beginning of your career. At what age did you discover you had a passion for physiotherapy and more specifically working with elite athletes? It probably, well, it did start in year year 12 when, you know, all of us sort of decide what we uh, want to do post high school. And probably an atypical story, most physios, whenever they get asked, they always say that they were injured and visited lots of sports physios and, and were exposed to that. But I was fortunate enough to not be injured and I had never come across a physio or seen a physio in, in my life. So it was more stumbling across the, the physiotherapist in the careers book, really, when I was just flicking through and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew I had an interest in spot science, maths, sport, PE, and, and definitely people. I wanted to work with people, helping people, and, and I didn't want to be stuck behind a desk and just working on a computer. So then I sort of came across it and thought, oh, this sounds like that could be something I could I could see myself doing and combining yep. sort of a few different interest areas. And so that 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 was literally the starting point applied for the uni, uni degree and studied at La Trobe and really fell in love with sports physio. Well, from the start, I probably wasn't aware that physiotherapists could even work in hospitals or other clinical settings. Again, like lots of sports physios, it's sort of you just got your blinkers on and, and that's all you want to do. When I had my placement, which was an optional sports or private clinic placement at, at Alfington Sports Medicine, I was exposed to some really good sports physios and I saw what they were doing, especially a, a guy by the name of Rich Citron was sort of my first exposure to it. He's, he now works at the Saints, actually, and I, I keep in touch with him. But I remember seeing that and being like, that's what I want to do. And so from, from undergraduate degree, I, that was the only thing that I wanted to pursue. Right. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Typically, like you said, most physiotherapists, mm. it, it is, they get exposed to a rough injury or, yeah, and, and a physio that's helped them along maybe getting injury after injury, but you're a, a healthy athlete playing footy and it was more so reading about it and, and an interest. So it was, was it almost a, a gut feeling of something that you thought you'd be passionate about? And then once you got a taste for it and met someone like Viv, you, you knew it was something that you, you definitely wanted to take on? 
Yeah, no, spot on, mate. It was it was definitely that I'd sort of narrowed it down to working with people. I wasn't, as my brothers can attest, I wasn't very handy. I wasn't going into a trade by any means. So it was definitely down the university pathway, yep. but I just couldn't stand the fact of being stationary, really, of sitting at a desk and computer work, which can sometimes be the path to have from a few of the degrees. And I love sport and I love science. And then that sort of just combined it and sort of where I saw that I could pursue Thought I'd try it, and yeah, through, through uni, definitely got the taste, and that was that was what I was pursuing. Yep. And talk us through some of your first experiences as a physiotherapist student or even post-grad. Yeah, so probably my interest was even further sort of developed in the sports physio through my undergraduate, like I said, with the placement, but I was also playing footy at the time for Coburg Tigers, and I developed a relationship with our fitness coach there who you might know, Rob Innes. I think you've probably come across him. He's in Sydney now. Yep. Working, doing some really wonderful things with the Swans. So he was our fitness coach at the time and I, I really picked his brain and, and had a, developed a, a real keen interest, not only in sports physio, but strength and conditioning and, and programming. And I used to just pick his brain on our program and why we were doing various things. So that was my first exposure and taste to more of the strength and conditioning. And then coming out of university, knowing I wanted to do sports, I started at a, a clinic that was aligned with different sporting organizations. And that actually ended up being just for a short period of time. And I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity with North Melbourne after a few months in an internship role, and then align that my week with working for a, for a clinic that was aligned with the, the football club, which was a couple of physios that were working at the club. And filled my hours seeing athletic population of the more of your local sporting sort of level while I was developing my knowledge at North Melbourne with an internship. So that was the early sort of steps towards that. And yeah, happened happened pretty soon after university and just, yeah, was passionate about it and loved what I was doing from from the outset, really. Yeah. And looking back now, how how much did you grow as a practitioner from in the clinic in terms of diagnostic diagnostic skills and, and treatment skills and all the rest of it through, I guess, volume of exposure of seeing lots of different cases and then on the flip side going to the develop what did you develop in as a practitioner in elite sport like yeah, fairly uh, different i imagine definitely fairly different mate but i think that you're sort of alluding to touched on that the fact that i think that they complement each other really well even though professional sport can be what people aspire to and, and i enjoy it and yourself obviously enjoy the the clinic exposure you couldn't be more accurate with the volume of of different conditions and different diagnosis that you're seeing you know when you're working in the clinic and, and I still do clinic hours now and that's why I'm passionate about that from an exposure point of view helping more people obviously is an element but you know in a football club I might see uh, two or three knee injuries or 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 four or five hamstrings depending on how well your your team's going as an example but in, in clinic you can see 50 hamstring strains in a year or, you know, I might see I might see one MCL at the football club and I'll see 10 in the clinic. So there's just from a pure exposure of trying different things and, and, and different athletes of different sports and different personalities. I, yeah, I couldn't see a better grounding. I think aligning yourself in a clinic where the population, and that can be the difficult thing, trying to get a clinic where the population aligns with active sporting clientele, you know, you, they, they can be found, but you just, I suppose if sport's what you want to do, you don't want to be stuck in a clinic where you might not be seeing that population group. Yep, um, yep, yep. But from just, yeah, pure basic diagnosis, chatting to patients, planning out rehabs, I, yeah, I definitely developed that through the early years, through my clinic work, probably more than from the club. 
on the flip side, from a professional sporting sense, like you said, is a different sort of skill set. Now you need those basics, but working within a team is something that you don't get in a clinic. And I think that then that's where the carryover can sometimes um, maybe catch some physios out. And probably you might see it with strength and conditioning coaches where you you're used to being that solo practitioner that the client in front of you relies on for everything and every piece of knowledge. Whereas you couldn't, you can't really learn that in a clinic of working within a team that we're all trying to achieve the same thing and how the different professions work together and and communicate to make sure that we're getting the best outcome. So learning Mm -hmm. that at North Melbourne, obviously early on was, was huge. That's probably the main thing. There's other things, you know, communication with coaches, the professional nature, obviously full-time athletes as opposed to seeing them once a week. So you've got a lot more nuanced coaching and you can be a bit more specific with your prescription. But yeah, it's sort of the overall answer. I think the two just complement each other and I would encourage physios to pursue both. Yeah, well said, mate. And yeah, some good gems there for the practitioners listening that want to work in elite sport or maybe are currently that there's plenty of value in the work you're doing in the clinic or or private practice outside of obviously the financial reward as well that it can bring early days. But in terms of the internship, for those that haven't had an internship at an elite sporting environment, how did it, how did it start? What were sort of some responsibilities, responsibilities that you start to undertake and, and talk us through, I guess, that process to eventually getting a, a contract? Yeah, so how it started, I suppose, was a bit of a different storyline. Again, there was, a, there was a role going for a full-time physio that they advertised they wanted an experienced physio, and I knew that wasn't me. But I applied and put a, a, a cover letter together of why I thought I could be valuable in some capacity. I got contacted by the performance manager, Steve Saunders at the time, who said, come in and have a chat. And he, he sort of confirmed that they don't, they're not looking for a, a young new grad physio, that they need an experienced physio. But because he, for some reason, you know, saw something in me or thought that I could potentially be valuable, young, enthusiastic with, with lots of energy, had said, well, why don't you come along? And we were, they'd been discussing about having an internship, but hadn't formally advertised it. So right. I went along and, st- and did a season where I would come in basically on main training days and another half day. And yep. I, was, I was just working within the team of three physios in, in a physio room and would be the somewhat of an assistant, you know, manual therapy if someone needed some more supervision of exercises, if someone needed extra tape, you know, there might be a line for taping. I was basically doing anything that the physios would, would let me or needed help with, which was, again, super valuable, like, you don't get that in the clinic working in a physio room with other physios. You work, you, I've said it before when I've chatted to friends of mine, it's, it's a unique environment where your work's being checked as opposed to clinical private practice. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like you've got supervisors, even though they're colleagues, like you're always somewhat having some checks and balances of what you're doing. And so to have that so early on with some really good physios was such a, a good experience. Um, and then fortunate enough from the internship that as as the the merry-go-round works sometimes in the AFL industry, a physio left, and then they, they appointed me as like the junior physio to step into that role rather than getting someone else experienced. And then, yeah, it went from there. Ah, oh, huge. Yeah, just, so going back from there, so you sent a, an original, obviously applied for a role. What do you think stood out compared to the other applicants that didn't make the interview stage, but he thought he saw something in that application to catch up with you and and, uh, you know, and offer an internship that wasn't even in the process of, of an internship at that time? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I suppose I wouldn't even remember what I wrote, really, to be honest, Jack. I think I probably had touched on my experience of working 
in private clinic and I'd had a little bit of sport exposure for a few months and I'd probably spoken about how that was the area that I was really passionate about and and I had a little bit of exposure so I knew what the setup was in in professional sport. I spoke about being growing up in football clubs and playing football through university. So again, I think I'm Again, I'm just more guessing here what I wrote, but I touched on probably what that experience had given me in terms of my ability to communicate and work within a team and within a football club. So then rather than you know coming in completely blind, there was probably an element that this guy knows how a football club runs and can is going to slot in to be part of the team and not try and come in and stand out or do something completely out of the ordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, maybe, you know, I tend to ask a lot of questions, as you know, Jack, working with me. So... Uh, I probably asked a lot of questions of the of the staff there, and maybe they thought that he's curious enough to come in and help us out. Yeah, yeah, like that. I mean, I mean, that's great advice. I mean, even just straight away off the bat, the fact that you're talking about how you can add value to the club, like sometimes that can be missed hmm. in, a, in an applied sense. Yeah, or what I you're going to bring. I think when I've been asked about this before, the the, the advice I'd have to people is just to give it a give it a crack, like. Mm. Speak to that person that you know, use your network, write a letter. Like, I, I, I do genuinely think I was pretty lucky, but it, it can happen. You can, you can get exposed to different environments by just having, having a go. And, you know, who knows that person, that person, you might be the person that they're looking for, for a specific role or responsibility. So, yeah, don't sort of sit back would be the main thing that I think you could take from it. Yeah, 100%. And you've mentioned some some influences into your career up until this point. Are there some other mentors while we're on that sort of topic or yeah. people that were strong influences in your career early on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the North Melbourne days, I touched on a couple of people, such as like Steve Saunders, who gave me my first role. He definitely taught me quite sort of a rude awakening of having sound reasoning. He quizzed me pretty hard. He, he liked to ask a lot of questions of why you're doing things. So I think that was a good grounding on always having an answer or always having a reason. Like people might disagree with your reason. That's fine. That's part of it. But being able to answer why are you doing that is important. Other people, I mean, there's, I do genuinely think I've come, I've gotten something from every colleague I've worked with. I like to sort of reflect on what they've brought me, but a couple of, you know, Pete McQuee was a sports physician at North Melbourne who probably the most thorough doctor, you know, in, in terms of, or physio in terms of assessment and not missing things and making sure that you listen to the athlete and what they're saying to you rather than just assuming you know. And this is a doctor who's been in the game for, I don't even know, 40 years at this stage. Dan Meehan was a strength and conditioning coach at, at North. He's, he's now over doing great things with Brooklyn Nets and his knowledge of muscle physiology and strength and conditioning, again, was second to none. So he was always willing to answer my questions and pick his brain while the weights, while the guys are lifting weights and asking why you're doing this and why you're doing that. And then, I mean, go, going on from there, there's, you know, moving over to Norwich and the UK and the and the soccer system was just sort of really opened my mind to different ways of doing things. And all of the practitioners there, I took something from, you know, we had this German coach and German high performance manager and assistant coach sort of team. And the way they came in and trained the athletes like I I thought those guys were crazy when I first saw it, you know, 12 days in a row and, you know, 20 sessions in 14 days and et cetera, things things that you wouldn't have, I I thought was, would just be ridiculous. Like how, you know, why would you do that? But players got through and we adapted and we had a low injury rate in season. So just seeing that it doesn't have to be always, especially as a physio point of view, you don't have Mm -hmm. to just protect and look after athletes. And that just tied perfectly then 
into then the flow of my career, sort of the opportunity came up at Melbourne Footy Club when I, I was fortunate enough to meet Darren Burgess and he sort of brought me into the footy club and that tied into his philosophy and just took so much from him in terms of, again, how hard you can push athletes and how you can almost manage the psychology of athletes and the and the belief that they have in themselves of how hard you can push them and with your language and with your confidence in the program and things like that, you know, can be just as important as the sets and reps and distances, as you've probably seen uh, how we do it at Melbourne. And then, I mean, all the colleagues at these, I think there is an exceptional performance team, you know, Selwyn Griffiths has now taken over as the performance manager and I take an enormous amount from him specifically from the rehab perspective. One of the best, if not the best rehabilitation sort of practitioners I've come across and has influenced my practice greatly. And then, you know, Dan James is our head physio and Laura Lalanek just being very progressive with sports medicine as well. You know, not having to go down the traditional, I say it again, protect mode that sports practitioners are known for. So, I mean, I've named a lot of people there. As you can see, I do genuinely think across my career, it's sort of developed with the people that are around me influencing it as I go. Yeah. And what do you think now that you've been in the industry for quite some time? Like, why do you think it has shifted more towards being around more practitioners that are willing to push and and take more risk with athletes and and take into account the psychology and and how important our words are, not just our reps and sets. Yeah. I mean, again, because I haven't, I mean, I haven't been in 10 football clubs, so I can't speak for all of it, but just like you've said, from a general feel, I think it has moved in that direction in terms of of football and, and AFL specifically. And again, I can't pin down exactly what has shifted that. I think that the main probably evolution has been success of implementing that philosophy. So, you know, going down the path potentially previously when I was starting my career, you know, people having niggles and looking after them or reducing the training, like making sure they have more rest days, you know, monitoring very strictly that they don't spike this metric or that metric, I think didn't really see, well, the stats would show it didn't see a reduction in injury rates. Uh, Potentially the outputs were increasing, you know, in terms of what they were able to deliver, but there could be other factors for that. But I'd see that then just over time, pushing athletes to return quicker from injury or training through that little bit of soreness to, to a, obviously a, a certain extent that sometimes you need to look after the athlete. Yeah. I think that there's probably seen that athletes perform better on, on the weekends and there's less injuries and they recover faster, which is one of the, be- the biggest things I'd seen that all of a sudden they're not pulling up a sore. They're sort of able to get out a good lift on the Monday because they've had this 10-week hard block and that that bounce back from game. So my general feel would be that clubs have just seen success. I don't know if there was one particular practitioner who pushed it. I think it was probably just a emerging of philosophies as we went. Experienced practitioners before my time had probably shifted along there, continuing. And I know Virgil was an example would speak to that point of not being as pedantic about monitoring and pulling back athletes, but actually sort of pushing them along was something that he had sort of progressed more into. And we did that. Yeah, I, I think that's a more successful approach as sort of as vague as that is, but as a, a general overview. Yep. No, well said, mate. And thanks for yeah, providing some good context. And it, it's a good segue into the next session of the podcast, which is the topic that we've chosen, an area that you're passionate about. So from a rehab perspective, I know you're big on your processes and, and planning. Can you touch on the, on why this is so important to you from a rehabilitation point of view? Yeah, sure, mate. 
I think that, like, yeah, as you said, like, I, you know, having a sound process, robust process within the team is so important. I think that it, it just, it, well, the first and foremost is that I think it provide it sets the athlete up with the highest chance of success. Yeah. I think that just across my career, you know, the processes can adapt, but having a sound sort of, you know, almost a flow chart of how you plan and conduct your rehab is going is going to educate the athlete on the starting point and their end point. It's going to give them a really clear understanding of what they need to do to achieve that. I think that, you know, if you talk to 10 different people on your podcast, you'll see that people might do, you know, things slightly differently, you know, different exercises, different prescription, different running loads, but they all seem to have had success. And lots of these people, you know, have good outcomes when it comes to rehabilitation. I think that that, to me, highlights the point that the actual nuances of the prescription, while it is important to make sure that it is sound, is actually the differences show that it, the process is the, the major point, I think, that is what causes the success in the, in the first place. You know, I think that this it's probably supported by most of the research that I'm aware of, you know, objective criteria-based rehab that we've yeah. sort of shifted towards. It's nothing new that, you know, I, that practitioners are using, but it just sort of, I think, can have a really positive impact on the, on the timeline that people return. You know, as I spoke about Selwyn Griffiths, our performance manager, he will often talk about that players need to earn the right to, mm-hmm. to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that's a really good saying. That's that's sort of part of our process that having your clear, distinct phases of your rehab, regardless of the injury, is sort of the process that I believe in. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and going from, you know, your early, whatever you want to call it, protect, immobilize phase that might last one day or two weeks, you're then going to start their intro or reloading, right? And then you're going to go to the high level loading or reconditioning. And then you're going to go to the return to performance. So if you're breaking that up in those phases, what takes an athlete from one phase to the next when are you confident that that injured tissue and also athlete as a whole is ready to progress now that's where obviously the sound objective criteria comes into it and i think that that is dependent obviously on the injury it's dependent on the athlete in front of you what sport they're competing in the environment that you're in the the testing equipment the the gym equipment but that's where another example of the nuances of what the criteria actually are. I think there is sometimes backed up by research, but you know, oftentimes it's not. But having a discussion of why your what your reasoning is of why the criteria is there in the first place to show the athlete and also the team that are working together of you know really improve their confidence that they're ready to progress to the next stage. Yeah, yeah, and for for the practitioners listening that maybe haven't been. You know, don't have access to nor boards and and ball sticks and the like. Can you and therefore I haven't had the experience or seen it? Yes, could you walk us through a glimpse of potentially what an objective process might look like? Like you mentioned, knowing the start point and the end point. I guess maybe for a hamstring strain or, or whatever injury you want to discuss, but how that would differ from I guess the the process of not having those objective markers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the. That's the clinic side, isn't it? Like being in private practice and you have to adapt to that, which is also part of the skill of being a practitioner, adapting when you do or don't have certain testing equipment. But I mean, to touch on the hamstring, you might, as an example, when you've got them to the stage where, you know, you might be going from that early loading and strength. So you then that to to reconditioning or higher loading. But what gives you the confidence that that tissue, hamstring as an example, is ready to progress to that? So you might have deemed that, return to baseline Nordic strength if you have it 
is something that is relevant. So that's showing like a knee dominant um, capacity and that mm-hmm. re- restoring their hip, you know, it might be a mid thigh pull isometric on a force plate. So that's when you do have the equipment, you know, that's mm-hmm. hip dominant and knee dominant. You're showing that that strength capacity is returned. That only mm-hmm. might be a couple of the criteria, but then you can adapt that into the clinic. So depending on who the athlete is, if it's a an athlete who's playing high-level local sport that's pretty proficient in lifting. So you might then have deemed that a knee-dominant and a hip-dominant objective criteria are important, and you want to look at a single-leg RDL barbell load, mm-hmm. you know, according to their body weight or potentially according to their baseline, and it'll hit a set number of reps for a weight. And then you might say, well, I deem a knee-dominant exercise to be important as well. So you might be looking at a single-leg hamstring curl weight according to body weight or, again, according to baseline. So that's an example you're adapting. You don't have the, the testing equipment, but you can easily still apply it. Um, include, yeah, include sound criteria of what gives you confidence that that tissue is ready to progress to the next stage. And you can see, and I guess you can elaborate on this, but you can see how you're referencing before the PROTECT model compared to this push and you know prepare athletes for performance. So straight away, if they've got a target, and you've mentioned this at the start, um, that you're going to need to hit these criteria. So you're going to be pretty motivated to probably put in some good intent and intensity in the gym. Is that sort of the constraint that you're trying to put it on the athlete? Of course, physiologically get ad- adaptation, but compliance, have you noticed better compliance with athletes? Yeah, absolutely spot on. You put that framework in front of them and all of a sudden they work towards it quicker. So mm. if it's not there, and, you know, potentially then they're going to underload or not want to push as hard because of maybe a little bit of tightness or symptoms. As soon as it's there in front of them, most athletes are going to try and progress to that as quick as they can. Now, yep. there's an element of, like you said, maybe we need to protect them as practitioners because there may be a certain pain threshold. Um, we're not scared of pain, but it might be that it's above a certain marker out of 10 or a certain quality of pain that we're thinking, no, we actually need to hold them back. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely you see this acceleration of them work working harder towards that target and i think that then that ultimately leads to them returning quicker hey there hope you enjoyed this episode with brendan eagleson we're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with bruce connor and you know like developing footballers is what would you say are some important things for a young footballer either they're, they're working towards getting into the AFL system or, or maybe they're, they're about to get drafted in the next couple of weeks what are some important things to, for their body that you've seen well yeah that's a good that's a good question I mean firstly getting a reputation for being a guy who works hard in a team and I know this is not physical yeah but it, that that question is asked so much when people start talking about who's going to join your club not just as a staff member, but as a player too. So the yeah. first thing you don't want to do is develop a reputation for being somebody who's going to upset the apple cart. So yeah. working well in a team and having people look at you and say, yeah, he's a good bloke to have in this club is a, is a very good start. Because if you're line ball with somebody else, that'll get you over the line. To hear more from Bruce Connor, make sure to scroll to episode six on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to the rest of the episode with Brendan Eagleson. Hope you enjoy. And have you ever had a, a case where you've, you've, like you mentioned, you have your processes and I think you mentioned a flow chart, so a bit of a visual in your head of how each injury and how you, how you apply an athlete to that process. Have you ever had a, 
an athlete a challenging case where that objective market looks like and you've got a return maybe it's september footy you've, and time's running out and you're not able to you, you get the idea that either you make the call that we're going to have to can this objective marker because we just don't have enough time have you had that situation before or if you've or have you not? Uh, no, 100%. And so that's why it's, it's obviously you have your sound processes, but there's contextual factors that are kind of going to shift and manipulate. And if if one of the things is finals, important game, important player, et cetera, comes into it, mm-hmm. then maybe it comes a point with a certain injury where, okay, we're chasing this marker. We haven't been able to achieve it so far. Your first point of call is can we still chase it with shifting what we're doing in our program because you mm-hmm. still want to achieve it. But if it gets to a point when, okay, this player needs to train, he hasn't quite hit this, what that includes, what that involves is a team discussion. So if that's in private clinic, it might just be you and the client. In a high-performance environment, that's performance manager, doctor, physio, rehab coordinator, coach, um, mm-hmm. athlete as well. And we're, we're all owning the risk Okay, so the athlete is well aware, and this isn't to try and catastrophize the situation. You're still trying to keep the athlete with confidence in their body. But if you're of the belief that they've done enough work and they might not have chased a certain strength mark or endurance marker and it hasn't been achieved, but you're confident that the risk is acceptable for the importance of the game, yeah, of course, we'll go ahead. But the number one thing is that the athlete owns it as well. Yeah. And that's where... That's where the, lots of the grey of sports medicine comes into it, and that's probably the bulk of our performance meetings will be that that grey zone of of how we're accepting risk and not accepting risk. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. Well said, mate. And yeah, I think it's it's good for listeners to hear that that it's not just rigid and there's yeah. like you've you know you've created this recipe and it it's a copy and paste. There's a lot of decisions that you're making on the daily in your role and with your team. Across different injuries, what would be some non-negotiable objective and, and I guess from a planning perspective that yeah, really important for, for a successful return to performance, do you think? Yeah. So when when planning a rehab, well, probably the principles that I and and, and a, again it's sort of we employ it at Melbourne that I've taken a lot from all of my colleagues there, I suppose, is the things that I think will set you up successfully is probably a handful of things, but early loading. So the tissue that's injured specifically, I think, should get some load into it. Now, that's, again, dependent on what the tissue is. Obviously, bone may need some immobilization or, or non-weight bearing, but you still then want to get some load in when allowed to. Ligament, you're wanting it to get as stiff as possible rather than pliable, like a tendon or a muscle. So, again, you're trying to probably immobilize that a bit more. But, again, at some point in time, whenever early is appropriate, you want to get some load into that tissue Muscle and tendon is a bit different. You want some pliability as well as some integrity. So again, you're wanting to load that quite early. But all of these tissues, I believe that the load going through it is where you know the mechanotransduction occurs and actually causes that that healing, which we can't quite assess. We know that, but we do know that load going through it it causes to adapt. So as early as we can get them loading, we will. Sometimes that might be even on the day of the injury occurring, depending on what the injury and, and tissue is. The second thing I'd say is that we would need to restore capacity. So that's where the objective criteria come into it. So range of motion, is it strength? Is it power? Is it endurance? Either the injured tissue, such as a muscle, or the muscles surrounding the injured tissue, like a knee or an ankle, what, what do we need to restore to show us that the capacity of that athlete has been restored 
to sort of at or above baseline. And again, that's adapted if you have equipment, if you don't have equipment, but coming up with how you think the best assessment of that capacity is. The third thing would be that I believe in injured athletes working really hard. And that sounds sort of basic, but you know, maximizing their output, I think is a key ingredient. Um, I know that again, another Sal quote, he would say that, you know, rehab is sort of training in the presence of injury rather than removing from the main group training. So you're actually trying to get as much training into them as you can. And that's cross-training from a cardiovascular perspective, strength training, core training, if it's upper body because they can't use their, their legs for the injury, but getting them to work around that injury is really important. I think one, we know that exercise is good for pain. It's one of the, it's probably the only thing we have gold standard evidence for that that can decrease pain, exercise in general, but also having that growth mindset of you're in rehab, but we try and get the athletes to exit rehab in a better shape than when they entered. And whether that is from a fitness perspective or a strength perspective, there's something that we can be working on. And the final thing, which again is well-documented, is how important sport-specific exposure is. So as early as possible, getting them aligned with the sport that they're competing in is important. So whether that's stationary kicking or whether that's touch on a, on a rebound and net, you know, whether it's walking, change of direction, or, you know, whether it's some decision-making drills that they can do stationary, handball and kicking, that kind of thing. The early that you can get that in, it's going to naturally, all of their tissues around them is going to get a little bit of protection from that. Awesome. They're the four things that, yeah, I'll probably say are the fundamentals. Yeah. And are they what you're sort of right in front of you or top of mind when you, when an injured suddenly is broken down for injury and you're, and you're in your early planning stage? Yeah, definitely. I actually, at my desk at Casey, I've got it up above my laptop on the wall, just like a general document of like what I need to include with each rehab, just to, like you said, to be front of mind sometimes, just to even remind myself, I might see something go, actually, you know, they, they can definitely do some ball work today that I might not have had in the plan. Um, and so it's just sparking it. So yeah, it's it's definitely front of mind, but it also helps that my colleagues are, have a similar philosophy. So we're always reminding each other of what when an athlete gets injured, that can they can be doing this, they can be doing this, and then they can't do this, they can't do this. You know, we kind of focus on what they can do rather than what yeah. they can't do. Yep. Oh, that's great. And in terms of going back to your own personal development, but for those listening in that want to be in the position that you are, what are some of your favourite ways to self-develop yourself? You've mentioned and throughout the whole podcast you know, how you curious and you love to ask questions from your colleagues. So clearly that's something that you really value, asking a lot of questions. Are there some other methods that you've found helpful along the way, whether it be podcasts, uh, re- research articles, calling yeah. other colleagues outside of different sports? Yeah. Yeah. I think what you touched on would probably be what I'd have as, as the number one, like using your colleagues around you, whatever environment you're in, I'd be putting a sure bet that there'd be someone, there'd be people around you that you can learn from and probably sometimes could even be annoying for my colleagues as people I've worked with, but I like to ask them lots of questions, even yourself, Jack, when we're chewing the fat in the weight room on of an afternoon. I think that that's probably how I've developed my knowledge the most. Uh, but a, another sort of thing, potentially a little bit different to, to the reading of the podcast is I think that what's really important is reflective practice. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we banged on about that at university, you get taught that at undergraduate and you do lots of, exercises and write essays on reflective practice and you probably sort of ignored it if you were anything like me and thought that, you know, it's not that important. But 
I think it definitely is. I, I still now, like when I'm driving home, just even a mental note doesn't have to be a notebook. It doesn't have to be written down, but taking note of what went well and what didn't. And, and then even across an injury, you know, across say the last season, I could, I can remember cases of, of injuries and sort of, I could give you what I took from that in a good or a bad perspective. And just having that check-in point with yourself of why things actually worked or didn't work. And you know, at the end of each season, I do actually write down a little reflection piece that I keep sort of stored away somewhere and actually jot down what I think I've taken from the season that caused either success or, or not quite optimal success. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then probably flowing on from that is, as you mentioned, like podcast such as yourself, probably should have said that as number one, obviously, Prepare Like a Pro <laughs> podcast. Yeah, on the drive out to Casey Fields. And uh, I'd like to say reading research articles, maybe a bit more a few years back. It's a bit more difficult now to sort of fit the time in. Um, yep. But definitely like obviously sound research, probably the more exposure I get is probably when it pops up on LinkedIn these days or, or Twitter when someone shared something, but definitely still try and keep my mind sort of in some of those research articles as well, as difficult as it can be with time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I've learned with the time that I've worked with you, mate, is how well-rounded you are as a practitioner. So you're so keen to get into the gym and learn off strength and conditioning coaches. We've had times where we've, obviously our team, we've had to chop each other out and you've led strength sessions, which is the you know the first time I've seen that. And you'd think you're a strength and conditioning coach if anyone walked in that was a stranger. So I think that's something that, yeah, obviously compliment to how you go about it. that thirst for learning is obviously built up these skill sets from the fact that you've been around these environments, but you've made the most of these environments. So for those listening in, if there's one thing that you can start practicing and implementing into to help you be the best you can be, I think that's something I've definitely learned from yourself. And we've had good chats where we're yeah, just chewing the fat, like you said, asking good questions and you never know where things can lead, but you know, I've definitely learned from it as well. So yeah, appreciate yeah, what you're doing, mate. That's awesome. And then for the and thanks for sharing that reflective practice. That's a that's a good one, a good piece to do and make the most of driving because there's a fair yeah. driving in this caper, isn't there, as well? <laughs> yeah, sometimes turn the turn the podcast or the radio off and sit with your own thoughts sometimes is good. Yeah, 100%. And and thinking back over highlights of your career so far, mate, is there any that, that pop up front of mind? Oh, yeah, obviously from a team perspective and that's ultimately what we want to do within our caper and that's again, can sometimes be lost on us practitioners that, yes, we're trying to make athletes more robust and healthier and and stronger, but we're trying to win. (laughs) So reflecting on that, obviously the premiership last year and also was lucky enough to be involved in a title from, you know, over in England with Norwich, both awesome experiences. And even though we feel like we're not contributing that much in our industry, you know, we are we're, we're part of the team. So that was that definitely one of, you know, probably the biggest highlights of my career. But then from a individual perspective, I think that the uh, joy I get when athletes return from injuries, again, probably more the longstanding injuries where they've had to battle hard and you see them succeed. And just as simple as a, as a high five and a thank you and a, you know, how good was that? How, you know, you know, felt so good out there when I returned. Things like that is probably, mm. you know, some of the biggest highlights that I've had. I mean, I remember one, uh, athlete at North Melbourne. It was probably the, one of the first times like I'd worked with a guy had three or four injuries in different body parts and he finally got to play in the in the seniors in the ones and as he was running out he came came over from the race and chucked his arm around me as he you know before he went out and he said oh thanks mate I, you know, I couldn't have got here without you and 
to him, he probably forgot that he said that, but that I still remember that. And that was probably one of the first tastes of we can help these guys achieve what they want to achieve. So, yeah. 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 Awesome. And then what about from a, a challenge point of view or, or moments throughout your professional career where yeah, you've been in a challenging situation, but ultimately you've worked through it and, and learned something from it. What would be the challenge? And then what did you learn? I mean, rather, I mean, it's not necessarily a, a specific situation, but the challenge of working within a team in elite sport, I touched on like the collaborating is one of the best things, but it also can be one of the most difficult things because there's so many different opinions and inputs. Everyone's yep. trying to achieve the same thing, but you, there's also an element of a little bit of slice of the pie and be heard and want my opinion to be taken seriously. So the challenge of that is enormous. And I mm-hmm. think that how you can sort of, I think, maximize that is sort of enter those discussions with a bit of humility. You know, I think that, you know, what pops from actually a podcast a couple of weeks ago, what was his name? Adam Grant a psychologist was talking about disagreements and working within a team. And he said that like the best leaders uh, have a, a high that balance of confidence and humility, something like that will rate highly on confidence scores and humility. And he sort of delved into that about humility doesn't have to be that you don't know anything and confidence doesn't have to be that you know everything. So having mm. that balance that you, you're you sure of yourself and you know what you're doing, but also humility, humble enough, sorry, to listen to other people's opinions and have input. So that's probably overcoming that challenge of just accepting that you don't know everything and you can get a lot from your colleagues. Yeah. You know, in terms of, I'm trying to think, in specific situations, it's probably everyone's answer would be with COVID, having to travel up to Queensland or Perth in both hubs within (laughs) the AFL environment and being away from family and friends was huge challenge. But I suppose I don't really have any specific advice for getting through that. It's just head down and plow on through and lean on your colleagues. I think it's the last of it all, yeah. <laughs> and then from a business point of view, no doubt there'll be some business owners listening in. You also run a business, Enhanced Sports Physiotherapy. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what it's all about and your role and how you balance that with your role also at the Melbourne Footy Club? Yeah, sure, mate. I started it with my best mate from uni, David Fay. He's an exceptional physio um, that's had you know different experience in sport himself and he's an exceptional business mind as well. So sort of work well together we set up this clinic that we've we run very much part-time involved with uh, sort of around our other work and I think I mean I've touched on it but in terms of the challenge of running a business is really rewarding but also just the clinical exposure that Dave and I get you know we've developed a little bit of a brand of sort of sporting clientele linked to local sporting clubs and surgeons and doctors sending us sort of the sporting and active population so the people that we're getting through the door are people who are motivated and athletes that we really enjoy working with. So, you know, I have the ability to come here. I, I balance it. I do two evenings a week around my football club commitments and I might come in and see, you know, seven to 10 in a night or could be five depending. But that that pure number that you're seeing of active sporting population is just growing your experience every time I come in and have a shift and I'm learning things every time and that I come through the door and I would encourage it, like I said, hard you know to balance it with hours and as you know you balance your own business on the side of doing you know employment with a club but i mm-hmm. think that it's really rewarding and it's sort of i think they complement each other um, yeah 100 percent. And, and for the parents of kids that might be injured or athletes are listening in that are going through injury where's the best place to to find you or, or book uh, yeah so we go instagram is enhanced sports performance jump on there dave does a great job posting some really good content and educational 
stuff. He's got a link. There's a link there to book online. We've got a location in Williamstown and Maribyrnong, so on the western side town. And yeah, we we love seeing teenagers active, people wanting to you know return to sport or achieve certain goals. Definitely hit us up, and we'd love to help you out. Yeah, I think it's something that definitely something I've noticed since working in the private sector. The difference between just going to see anyone compared to someone that's worked with athletes and understands sport is uh, night and day for, in terms of results for the, for the athletes. So for parents listening in, make sure you if you haven't got a contact or someone that you trust, then yeah, definitely check out Brendan. I'll add all the links in the show notes. So if you are driving, listening to podcasts, then you can yeah at the end of your drive you can check them out all in the show notes. We'll move into the personal side of the, the podcast now, mate, the get-to-know Brennan section. Have you got a favourite inspirational quote? You've mentioned a few of Selwyn's favourites. Have you got any um, inspirational quotes or life mottos? I probably don't have a – no, I probably don't have a quote for you, unfortunately, but I do, as sort of vague as it is, I remember reading a book a few years back that sort of said that you should reflect on what your philosophy may be general in life. And I think that one of the things that I sort of came up with to sort of summarize how I try and live is just sort of to be positive, spreading positivity, you know, and that's what I try and do within my colleagues. You know, life's pretty good, I think. So just enjoy it. But no, nothing inspirational quote for you. Oh, that's inspirational, mate. It's a good good outlook. And then what about in your work life, do you have pet peeves, things that fire up, maybe something that footballers might do from time to time or, or colleagues? Uh, well, I think I had a discussion the other day with one of my colleagues, Nick Murray, actually. We were talking about unneeded busyness. People were <laughs> – uh, need to project how busy they are, I think, can sometimes be a little bit annoying. That's popped you know, up a few times, I reckon. Yeah, just just do do a good job, do the work that you need to do and people will see your value. You don't need to project that you're doing too much. It yep. would be something. Yeah, that's a good one. And then when you do get a day off, you're not in the clinic or at the footy club, how do you like to spend it? What's your favourite way to spend your day? Well, so I've got my lovely wife, Chloe, and we've just had our first daughter four months ago. So any time off will be spent with them. That normally involves a long walk, coffee, maybe maybe a little brekkie out, some exercise. That'll be not a nice sort of typical rinse and repeat routine on a day off. But if I can sneak out on the golf course, you know, and get around in, I'm not very good, but I enjoy it. So that, that's every few weeks or so. Yeah. Nice, mate. Well, you've got plenty going on. Talk us about what's on the horizon for the rest of 22. What, what are you excited about at the moment? Well, the pressing piece of excitement, I suppose, is the final series. You know, we've got our first final next Friday, Jack, and we've got Casey's final Saturday, which is exciting for us and yourself. So hopefully have a successful finals campaign. It's an exciting time of year. The weather gets warmer and everyone gets a bit happier and walking with the spring in their step into the footy club. So looking forward to that. And then you know, the off-season is a great mental reset, bit of extra free time and probably head away for a holiday somewhere. And on the side of that, you know, the business as well with, with my mate Dave, just we're growing all the time and we're, we've got a couple of young physios that work for us that we're trying to increase their exposure. And, yeah, I enjoy sort of mentoring them a little bit. And if we can keep growing that, that'll be great as well over the back half of the year. Oh, 100%. So, how, so Dave, it sounds like he's a physio as well. So you guys... Yep dual physios, both founded the business, and then you're bringing in some physiotherapists that recently to develop them up to, bring, to create their own practice? Is that what they're doing? Uh, the two physios will work for us as subcontractors yep. and they do it around their other work as well, just like we do, very flexible. So they come in and, yeah, we provide them with PD and development and, yeah, we've got a good little crew. Fantastic. And sporting teams, is that something that you guys help out? With, with our business? 
Yeah, like local yeah, footy yeah. clubs and so we've got we've got relationships with footy clubs. I don't directly I'm not there because of my commitments with the club, but we have one of our physios who goes down and works with local footy local footy club, and then we've got relationships with four or five where the coaches and us we know each other and we will make sure we call after we see any of their players and we'll keep them up to date with any of the rehab programs and I think they really enjoy it like that high level you know contact from a practitioner really aids their trust in what we're doing and then they're happy to send their players because they know that they're going to get back as soon as they can fantastic awesome love that well yeah for any footy coaches listening in make sure to hit bring it up and uh, yeah you can your athletes can be well supported and more importantly from the coach's perspective come back for for finals because like you said we're at that pointy end of the year where everyone wants their best team on the park so Thanks so much for, for jumping on, mate. And uh, we've got a big day tomorrow, exciting day ahead. And it's that time of the night where it's probably time to hit the sack and, and wind down. But really appreciate you jumping on and sharing with us all your experiences, stories, and also more importantly, philosophy in terms of return to play from a rehab point of view. For those that want to get in contact and maybe hit you up on socials, are you a social media person? Where's the best place uh, to find Not particularly the best at sharing content, but probably through at Enhanced Sports Performance. We'll always get back on the on the DM through there, but also my email address. I'm more than happy to answer any questions or if anyone needs any help with any rehabilitation. So that's brenton at enhancedsportsperformance.com.au. So feel free to share that around, Jack. Yeah, always happy to get back to people and through the fact. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for, for those that are tuned in live. If you're tuned in halfway, make sure to watch the whole episode. You can watch it on YouTube. Once we click the end of this recording, it will live on our YouTube channel and then we'll release the podcast next Tuesday. And our upcoming Prepare Like a Pro live chat show is with Kelvin Giles on September 2nd at 3.30 p.m. So I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as Q&A segment, aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their N of 1 experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the strength conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man that. Uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll hand it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent.
Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.